Hello and welcome to our broadcast. I'm your host, Maya Hayes, Senior Consultant for Caregiver Wellbeing at Providence. As a reminder, the information that we're going to provide during this event is for educational purposes only. If you have any questions regarding medical conditions or treatment plans, please consult your physician. Now, let's get started. Joining me today, I have Dr. Robin Henderson, who serves as the Chief Executive of Behavioral Health for Providence, Oregon, and Dr. James Simmons, board-certified nurse practitioner and founder and host for Ask the NP. So welcome to you both. To get us started, can each of you tell us a little bit about what you do in your roles? Well, I'll go ahead and jump in, and it's always a pleasure to be with you, Dr. James. I, I love um, talking about mental health and healthcare with you. Uh, I am the Chief Executive of Behavioral Health for Providence in the Oregon region. Uh, so pretty much everything that happens in behavioral health in Providence in Oregon ladders up in some way through me, whether it's inpatient, outpatient, primary care. I am a licensed psychologist by training, and I'm also the Chief Clinical Officer of Work to Be Well, which is our youth mental health education and prevention uh, program that, that is absolutely awesome. I uh, feel very much the same way, by the way, Doc Rob. So always good to see you. And Maya, we're so excited to, to be here with you. Thank you for hosting this and for having me as a guest. This is great. Um, I am a hospitalist nurse practitioner. A lot of folks don't know what a hospitalist is, but I don't, although I think we're, it's healthcare providers that are watching. So most folks get, get that. I'm the primary internal medicine person that takes care of people in the hospital. I do that as a nurse practitioner. And I am a doctorally prepared nurse practitioner, hence Dr. James, just not to confuse anybody, right? We were chatting about that offline before we went live. Um, I also am a proudly a, an ambassador for the CDC's Let's Stop HIV Together um, initiative, which is really working with community partners and clinical partners to get the message about HIV prevention methods out to lots of different communities in different and new and exciting ways. Um, so that's a lot of fun. And then I also have, of course, I started this crazy online thing called Ask the NP, everything you're too scared to ask your MD. Oh, seven or eight years ago, and it's certainly taken on a life of its own. So <laughs> I do a lot of that as well, and, and and happy to be here again today. That's great. Thank you both so much. So today we're here to talk a little bit about PTSD in the workplace. So Robin, do you mind sharing with us what exactly PTSD is and how common it is? Absolutely. Post-traumatic stress disorder is a mental health condition that results after either experiencing or witnessing a traumatic event. And it can happen, you know, up to a month, maybe even longer after the event has occurred. And it really is, it includes things that are that are fairly traumatizing, like having flashbacks, re-experiencing the event, developing severe anxiety, um, having different patterns of behavior that may develop as a result of the impact of that event on your life, having uncontrollable thoughts, even uncontrollable dreams and things like that. But basically it's that disruption that occurs after you've experienced or witnessed uh, some type of an event. And it can go on for years and years before you even realize that what you're dealing with is post-traumatic stress disorder. Absolutely. Dr. James, you've been on the front lines working with other RNs in the LA area during the pandemic. Would you say that there's a level of trauma associated with the work that you're doing? Would you say that the sky is generally blue? <laughs> if, there, if there aren't clouds there, my goodness. Yeah, um, it has been 
a, a very kind of a hot topic of conversation as of recent, um, because so many of us, you know, I think the way that it's manifesting in, in the environment. So as a nurse practitioner, I sort of operate in the ways that you think of a physician operating. So I, I come in, I talk to patients, I see them, we come up with a plan with the families, I assess the patient, I order consults and tests and all these different things, have conversations with the nurses, and then I leave. Well, the nurses, the RNs that practice in, in that capacity are at the bedside all day long. Regardless of the role, we all have got realized that we we are so much shorter tempered um, than we were previously. And I think that's maybe the number one way that this is manifesting in a lot of us, at least in the workplace. You know, we are always, I tell people, we we always are seeing people at at kind of at their worst. They're in pain. They're, you know, oftentimes away from their family. It's really confusing. There's lots of like, what's going on with me right now? There's something, there's something wrong and I'm people are scared, right? It's not like we're seeing folks at Disneyland. And so that takes a level of of you know patience as a, any sort of provider anyway. And so many of us are just realizing that we just don't have any patience. Like we have nothing left in the reserve. And so we're crankier with each other and with our patients when we don't we don't even really want to be. And that really struck me when Doc Robbins said that about change in behavior. I'm generally a really happy-go-lucky sort of guy. And I I have been really snappy oh since about January. And huh, I wonder what happened in Southern California in January. <laughs> a surge of something. I'm not sure if you'd heard of yeah. I don't I don't recall. <laughs> <laughs> So that's that's all really wonderful reflection from both of you. Are there other signs that somebody's that somebody might be experiencing PTSD that you guys could explain a little bit more? You know, there's really four major categories that that symptoms fall into. There's the the intrusive memories, and they may show up in in thoughts. They may show up in reactions. A lot of times, what we see for people is they may have an overreactive startle response, right? So when somebody walks in a room or surprises them, you know, normally people might react to that, but somebody with PTSD may have a an extraordinary overreaction to that and may scream or startle even in unexpected places. They may have upsetting dreams and nightmares about the traumatic event that recur. And they may have, you know, some physical reactions even when they're in situations that may trigger something that reminds them of the event. There's also the, the symptoms of avoidance, like trying to avoid thinking or talking about the traumatic event, thinking that, okay, if I don't talk about it, then I'm not gonna relive it. If I don't think about it, and that type of avoidance type behavior is really characteristic of PTSD. Also avoiding the places, the activities, and the things that may have led up to that traumatic event. Then we also have kind of what Dr. James was talking about, those negative changes in thinking and mood, heightened irritability at a time when you would not necessarily have been irritable before. Negative thoughts about yourself, blaming yourself, negative thoughts about other people in the world, hopelessness about the future. That's a really hallmark sign in there of PTSD. Having memory problems, especially memory problems that might, you know, cause you to not remember important aspects of the event or even simple tasks that you used to be able to do. And about what Dr. James was talking about, I can imagine in the healthcare world, world for nurses, many things become very routinized and routinized. But when we're dealing with somebody who's got PTSD, some of those even simple tasks can be forgotten because there's an interruption in that rote memory. 
And of course, feeling detached from, from family and friends and close relationships, almost feeling like you're the other in the room or maybe that depersonalization where you feel like you're watching something even though it's not really there. And then lastly are the things of the changes in physical and emotional reactions, those feelings of being just emotionally numb where it's not happiness, it's not sadness, it's just numbness. That type of thing is very, very common. Also always feeling like you're on guard or in danger, that something bad is gonna happen. And of course, the hallmarks of things like trouble sleeping, trouble concentrating, trouble with eating, disruption in eating, whether it's eating more, eating less, and of course, increased alcohol and drug use. A lot more symptoms and signs than that, but I think that gives you a taste of really the domains that we look for in PTSD. I definitely think so. And it seems like something that I bet, unfortunately, a lot of our caregivers can relate to right now. Yeah. And would you both say, and I, it sounds like it from what you've said so far, but would you both say that PTSD is on the rise in the workplace right now? You know, I just read a study earlier that was talking about before the pandemic, they were saying that like 19% of emergency department personnel suffered some form of PTSD. We're seeing those numbers now, even not, you know, outside of the ED and primary care run more like 36 to 40, even 50% of people are experiencing some form of PTSD. And I think that's only rising. What are you seeing, Dr. James? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I, I saw a study recently that it was actually, the, they were, did their data through January of this year and then they released mm -hmm. their result, results in April. So it was actually before the Delta surge. This one was specifically about nurses, about my people. And it was um, very similar to your findings. About 20% of nurses, uh, prior to COVID had some sort of relatable PTSD or even you know very specifically diagnosed PTSD, that number rose in just that short amount of time to 38%. Um, so, and I, I would imagine that it's probably, and that was diagnosed. So I would imagine that it's, it's much, much higher for those of us who have not been officially diagnosed, but also um, I think the kids say, Doc Robin, I feel very seen. <laughs> All of those symptoms that you were just talking about there, I was like, I feel incredibly sick. Is Doc Robin in my house right now talking to me? Particularly, you know, the thing that's really troublesome to me was this, when you talked about this detachment and this numbness, and there's always, you know, working in critical care, you learn this very early on. There, You have to learn coping mechanisms and you have to learn that there are some emotional boundaries. Um, and if you don't put those in in a healthy way early on, uh, it, it can be very, very troublesome you know, later on, particularly you can turn to things like alcohol and drugs very easily to cope, particularly in that critical care environment where you're unfortunately seeing people at their sickest of their sickest or dying. But I, so I never had the detachment, you know, in the 12 years that I've been doing this, I've always still been able to sort of relate to the person, but I, I really think COVID did took that away. Like, you know, at some point in time, it, it started to feel like this, it's just another COVID patient. Um, rather than this being someone's parent or uncle or grandmother or child, you know, like, um, and, and that was, I think for me, I knew that was starting to turn a little bit into, I'm really living some trauma, some post-trauma and some current trauma. And I, I got to figure out ways to sort of kind of work on these so that I don't completely detach from these people who I've, you know, taken an oath and dedicated my life to serving. And to follow that up, Dr. James, 
Has it been different in this latest surge caused by the Delta variant as it was for your experience and your your uh, your co-caregivers' co experiences during those earlier surges? I think we're more angry now, just got to be honest. Um, yeah. Because, you know, while not, you know, there's a startling number of healthcare providers, nurses, physicians, respiratory therapists, et cetera, who aren't vaccinated and don't believe in it, the majority of us do. And we know that hospitalizations and deaths can be largely prevented um, by being vaccinated. And so this time around, we're, we're kind of angry um, that, you know, don't you see what everyone went through? Don't you see the 663,000 people just in the United States alone that have died from this disease? And then you're voluntarily not doing something. So you trust me to keep you alive in the ICU when you come to the hospital and you trust all of those things that I need to do, but you don't trust me when I tell you to get a vaccine. And, and that having that animosity, I'm just being really frank here, having that animosity right away is not where you want to start your patient caregiver relationship, right? Like that's not necessarily a good place to be. And so when someone comes in and they're, you know, we we're like, oh, we got to put them on BiPAP or intubate them for heaven's sake or whatever. And you're a 40 year old with kids at home and you're otherwise healthy and you chose not to get vaccinated, it's, it, it's, it makes us angry. <laughs> Dr. James, you are, you are expressing in real time what we're seeing with healthcare workers all over the place. Yeah. Workers who are beginning to resent treating the unvaccinated and how we feel about that, especially in mission-driven organizations where it is our mission to treat the poor and the vulnerable and everybody including the unvaccinated, even though you're going to trust me to do this, this intubation, which is a very invasive procedure, extraordinarily invasive procedure. And yet you're not going to trust me when I tell you that we could have prevented this had you gotten vaccinated. We could have prevented this. That's the thing that I think that, that we're really dealing this cognitive dissonance mm -hmm. is exhausting. And cognitive dissonance like that makes it really, really difficult for us to show up as our full self at the bedside. That's reality. Doesn't mean that any of us are good people, bad people, judgment, et cetera, et cetera. Living in this space of dissonance is very, very, very wearing. Then let's layer one more piece on top of this. For most of us around the country dealing with the Delta variant, we have had to yet again change our visitor policies. So you show up in the ER and you're delivering your grandmother who now is in the throes of COVID and you're, you're sitting here as the patient, as the patient's, you know, child going, oh my gosh, I'm leaving you here. I can't stay because I'm not allowed to stay. And now grandma's going to get taken up to the floor. She's going to get intubated. She's going to have all these tubes and there's nothing it is that I can do. I can't even visit. And so where do you do with your anger that you can't see your grandmother? And you're also dealing with the reality that because you were unvaccinated, you're probably the one that got her sick. Mm. So how we put all of these pieces of dissonance together and then still function, who are you going to get mad at? You're going to get mad at the healthcare worker taking care of your grandmother because they're the most convenient target to get mad at. And that's part of what we're also dealing with. Yeah. Healthcare workers started the pandemic. You remember the days, Dr. James, when healthcare workers were heroes. We clapped their mm. hands and they right. right. And you know what happens right now? Healthcare workers are showing up to work and we're getting yelled at. 
and we're getting blamed and we're getting abused and protested and, and all of those things. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, yeah there's your PTSD. <laughs> there's, a, there's another piece of it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so we have a really good question from Facebook. She says, my granddaughter works in the COVID unit. Is there a way to not, she or he, sorry, my granddaughter works in the COVID unit. Is there a way to not get PTSD from that experience? I, I certainly, um, <laughs> I'm PTSD trying to, prevention. I'm trying to write, have on my, uh, Dr. James medical expert yeah. uh, on, on television. And then my, you know, Dr. James, who was just in the ICU two days ago, seven days in a row. Um, it's really, really hard. I think that this is one of the, the best things that you can do. And I have, I've, you know, I have students, sometimes, I've med students with me sometimes and nurse, uh, nursing and NP students with me sometimes. And one of the things I tell them uh, is that if you take anything away from me, it is that you have to learn what these boundaries are and these things that you're going to learn to cope to do this job early on and, and, and don't hesitate to fall back on those. And if that's literally, you know, there's a respiratory therapist the other day who who said some things that were a little bit concerning. And I was literally like, you here is a text-based counseling app. You don't, she's like, I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't like telling my emotions or whatever. And I was like, but I bet you text a hundred times a day. And she was like, yeah. And I was like, great. Here's a free text counselor through your insurance, the insurance we have at the hospital. Like use this, please talk to somebody. So have those, try to, Think about those things even before you walk into the unit. And don't think about the fact that you have been in the ICU for so long or you've done those things. Start today. It is okay to start today to say, these are the things I'm going to do to cope in a really positive way. And this is the person that I'm going to talk to or the individuals I'm going to talk to to express my frustrations and to cry and to do all those things that we need to do because we're humans and get those emotions out um, before, because it is traumatic. And you can get through that trauma without, I think, developing so many of the things that Doc Robin has talked about that manifest yeah. as PTSD. Yeah. Self-care is the key. You are 100% right. Proactive self-care is the key. Figure out where your work stops and what is your ritual for the end of the day? Um, what is your ritual for how you put a capstone on that so that you can go and have the time to be you with your family, with your relationships? The place to process out all of the stuff that you see is probably not your primary relationship, uh, probably not your family. That's probably not the healthiest place to go. What you want to do is to figure out, is it the chaplain at your hospital? Is it the text-based app or your employee assistance program? or the behavioral health provider in primary care, or, you know, the online support group for nurses that, you know, they're, they're out there. They're out there for all of us right now. There's a lot of online support, whatever it is, figure out what your plan is for how you're going to process your day, figure out what your self-care ritual is. I don't care if it's meditation five minutes in the morning when you get up and five minutes at night when you go to bed, if it's, face masks where you, you sit with all that nice unctuous clay mask on your face and relax <laughs> and turn off the universe. Or if it's watching Married at First Sight endlessly because that <laughs> for real will take your mind off of everything else. Whatever it is that, that can distract you, figure out what those things are and add them to your self-care kit because you've got to figure out how you refuel your bucket so you can go back in the next day. 
Absolutely. Those are some great suggestions, Doc Robin. Dr. James, do you have some self-care suggestions too for our caregivers? You know, I was just thinking I have a I have a friend of mine who um she's she's actually sort of a, a well-known name. And so I, I won't say who she is because a lot of people don't know this about her, but she also kind of um I guess she's a medium is the right way to think about it. But she just sort of was like in the middle of everything going on her and I were chatting you know it was before California had opened really at all and her and I were just like facetiming and she was like I literally feel all of the the energy and the spirit of these people that you've cared for that have passed they're on you they're with you and you're bringing them into your house and so she's like I need you to just like Doc Robin said develop a ritual to let these individuals know and let their spirits and their energies know mm -hmm. that you know you cared for them and they were there but that they're not allowed to come into your personal space like you need that space for your own healing and simultaneously i had just started doing this thing where i i always feel guilty if i'm driving and not learning something I'm trying to practice my spanish i'm learning about the stock market i'm learning about covid like i'm constantly listening to something to educate myself while i'm driving but i noticed that i just started listening to the same couple of songs on repeat and they were always songs that made me cry. And I was crying myself to work and crying myself home from work with the same couple of sad songs. Right about the time she told me, you have all this energy with you, you need to release this energy. And interestingly, when I stopped feeling bad about listening to the songs over and over again and just crying it all out, I felt so much better. And I told those, the energy, you can't, you're not welcome into my house. You, you can't do this. I also, to Doc Robin's point, I made the mistake early on of, of thinking that my husband was the number one person who needed to hear all of my COVID patient care woes. Uh, and that was a big mistake. <laughs> and luckily he's a wonderful, caring, supportive human being who also was wise enough to sit us down and say, uh, you need to process this. It should not be with me, like mm. for a myriad of reasons. And so, I came up with that. I have lots of other self-care things, like yoga. And now that the world's open again, I'm playing yeah. tennis and things like that. But um, a lot of those things, and also a lot of the just like spiritual, you know, like if it's praying for you, for me, it's crying and listening to sad country songs, like whatever it is to like sort of cry, process those things out. I think it's really important because it's it really helped a lot. Yeah. I agree. And I think also we just need to make sure that we laugh as much as we can. It's, it's hard getting through all this. So we have to make sure we laugh every day. Ted Lasso so, has been, been great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ted Lasso for self-care. I missed that, miss that Creek one, too, you know? Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, yes. Yes, the one we can't say, Creek. Exactly. <laughs> Old episodes are just as good, though. Awesome. Yeah, that's true. So if you recognize, if any of us recognize that somebody might be struggling or suffering PTSD or other mental health issues, is are there any ways that you suggest approaching that person and kind of letting them know gently that they might need to talk to someone? Absolutely. The best way to start talking with somebody about your concerns, ask him out for a cup of coffee, sit him down and say, you know, I know I'm struggling with this stuff. I know that it's getting to me and I'm beginning to feel the weight of it. I want to know how you're doing, you know, lead with you and talk about, you know, you're not the paragon of virtue walking in here going, I got this figured out, man. <laughs> this is your opportunity to be vulnerable and say, this is tough for me. Here's how it's tough for me. I want to know how you're doing because I'm concerned because that gives per people someone, you know, permission to be vulnerable with you, but be direct, 
have the conversation. And if you can get somebody to open up and they start saying, you know what, I really feel like I need to reach out and get some help, but I don't know how. Then take them by the hand and say, you know what, we're going to partner together and we're going to call the behavioral health provider at your primary care clinic and get you scheduled for a visit. We're going to text the text-based app that we've got here. We're going to do whatever it is that we're going to do and we're going to get you started right now so I can make sure you get started. And then be accountable and come back around and say, you know, how'd that work for you? Were you able to get some help? How are you doing? Those types of things, that type of follow-up and care, always, if in the moment you sense that somebody is actively suicidal, if they're expressing that sense of hopelessness, that it's better if they're just not here, that's the time for immediate action. That's the time to pick up that phone and call, you know, the suicide hotline, the national suicide hotline. And to really get a crisis person in there in the moment, talking with somebody in the moment, I would rather be wrong about that and have somebody say, no, 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 I'm really, I'm, I'm okay. And actually have them be okay, than be wrong and have them hurt themselves. Help is always, always available. And it is not a trigger to talk to someone about their mental health or suicide. It is absolutely not. What if somebody refuses to get help? Is there anything we can do? Absolutely. If somebody refuses to get help and you know they, they get help, get it for them anyway. Talk to their spouse, talk to their family, talk to their supervisor, talk to HR, talk to whomever you feel you need to talk to who could, you know, other people to intervene. The number of times this year that I've been called in in situations where a caregiver has been expressing that hopelessness and, and has even, you know, gone as far to stop communicating with people. We have gone to lengths that I've never seen us go before, including sending police out for a welfare check and things like that, because we're worried about our caregivers. We know this stuff is stressful. We know this is creating trauma that people are processing and dealing with because they're seeing death every single day. And it's controllable death that people are choosing not to intervene in, choosing not to be proactive about and get care about. I want to also just point out to you, you know, for those watching that you see the number scrolling there, 1-800-273-TALK is the National Suicide Lifeline. Also, um, seven four, you can text HOME, the word HOME to 741-741, the crisis text line. And I think what's important for both of those is that both of those resources and the Trevor Project, if you're queer, and there's lots of different stuff, yeah. but um, those resources are not just for the individual who might be experiencing crisis. They're also for you to know how to help them. And yeah. so you can literally call 1-800-273-TALK and say, I, I think my friend is thinking about harming herself. I don't know what to do. Yep. And so, you know, if you're in the workplace and in a fantastic work environment, like what Providence has, there are resources there. There's Doc Robbins around. There's all kinds of other stuff. But you might be in smaller community settings, more rural settings, something like that, that doesn't have as robust of resources. Even if you're worried about a fellow coworker in the hospital environment or in the care environment, you can call 1-800-273-TALK or text home to 741-741, the crisis line, and literally say, I, I think my friend's going to hurt herself. I, I don't know what to do. And they, they will respond immediately and help guide you through that process. Amen. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So we know that sort of worst case scenario, if someone has PTSD that goes untreated, worst case scenario, self-harm, or harming others. But what else can happen to somebody who has PTSD that's left untreated? They can cry every day on the way to work. 
and on the and on the way home from work. Uh, but it does it does help. It it honestly does help. I, I I will say just in my own experience, as I really am trying to work through my PTSD, and I'll let Doc Robin you know sort of talk about the the official aspects. But just personally, it's ble it's bleeding over into other parts of my life. You know, mm -hmm. I have had multiple friends and family members call me out and be like, "Dude, what's wrong? Like you are cranky pants lately." And I'm sort of like, yeah, I am cranky pants. Mm -hmm. I'm also the biggest thing for me, which is very odd because I'm a pretty, I'm kind of a hustler. Like I'm kind of a go-getter. I'm super unfocused. Like if I have any time in my day that is unstructured and I have to structure it myself, I am like a lost puppy, which is a very new feeling for me. Um, and so I, I sort of am just acknowledging that, like learning where I am. I'm having other people in my life try to structure things for me so I don't have to think about it as much. Um, I'm also being kind of trying to be gracious with myself and be like, it's okay. Like you don't, you don't have to fill every hour of your day. You don't have to know exactly what you're going to do with the next three hours. And if those three hours mean going to old watch, watch old episodes of blank Creek or Ted Lasso again, or golden girls, which has been a lifesaver, you know, like whatever you need to do, do that. And that's okay. But I, I, I think that's to a lot of folks out there, that unfocused thing that we're sort of all dealing with. Because healthcare workers aside, we all have a level of PTSD, I think, from this whole thing. Yeah, I agree with that. I find my temper to be a little bit shorter with the kids. <laughs> well, and you're bringing up what is the hallmark of PTSD. Untreated PTSD is the destruction mechanism for relationships of any and all kinds. And untreated PTSD is going to hit the people you love the absolute hardest because it's going to be how you're taking out that cranky pants on your spouse, your husband, your wife, your kids, your coworkers, your patients, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. the grocery store clerk, you know, the waiter in the restaurant, all those other types of things. Untreated PTSD is like the toxin that kills relationships. And for some people, that also then turns internally on themselves as well. So really know that there is treatment. It's very effective. It's out there. It's available. Uh, get yourself in with a therapist, a psychologist, uh, whatever your preference of healthcare provider is. There's medication available for people who may need medication support. That does happen sometimes with PTSD, especially when people develop depression and anxiety along with that. And those things are all okay. But treatment's available. Treatment is very effective and it works. Thank you so much, Doc Robin and Dr. James for joining us today. And to everybody that listened and sent in your questions, if you're looking for help with your mental health or other medical advice, please visit providence.org. And make sure to follow Providence on social media at Providence on Twitter and under Providence Health System on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thank you all. <laughs>